Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 56. Last week, I covered the time period from the mid-3rd century BC to the mid-2nd century, the period of time when Ptolemies 3 through 6 ruled Egypt. It was during this time that Ptolemaic Egypt peaked and then declined. Also during the period, Rome was gaining power, and both Macedon and Seleucia were declining. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning with Ptolemy VIII and working through Ptolemy XII, starting in the year 169 BC and covering about 118 years, which will get me to the year 51 BC. As you'll notice, not many years are covered in this episode, but the history is important as the narrative concerns how Rome came to control Egypt, as it did when Christ and his earthly parents lived there in exile. So, with that, let's get started. Ptolemy VIII earned himself two nicknames. The first was Eurgetes II, which is really confusing, the full name of Ptolemy VIII Eurgetes II. But for clarity, he is sometimes referred to as Ptolemy the Sycon, which translates to Ptolemy the Fat, or maybe the Potbelly. It should be obvious how he earned that name. Backing up to last week's episode, you'll remember that his older brother, Ptolemy VI, was the ruler of Egypt. And you should recall that Egypt was attacked, invaded really, by King Antiochus from the Seleucid Empire and the invasion was relatively successful, to the extent that Ptolemy VI was captured, along with most of Egypt. Essentially, the only area that remained free was the city of Alexandria. Antiochus would allow Ptolemy VI to continue as king, but he was really a vassal of the Seleucids. The independent people of Alexandria had different plans. Since their former leader was now a puppet of their enemy, they had to choose a new leader, and they went with number six's younger brother, number eight, Ptolemy Sycon. Antiochus could see the Roman storm clouds on the horizon and withdrew his forces from Egypt in 168 BC. Then, the two Ptolemies, six and eight, along with their sister, who was also six's wife, Cleopatra II, all agreed to rule Egypt as a sort of triumvirate. But all was not well. Most of Egypt was satisfied with the ruling threesome, except for a few areas under Number 8's control. In an effort to gain support, Number 6 journeyed to Rome and appeared before the Senate, attempting to convince the August body that the triumvirate was the best possible solution. In an effort to maintain order, after meeting with the Senate, the three siblings agreed to divide up the kingdom into areas where each would be the primary governor. In May 163 BC, the two brothers decided to alter the original division of the kingdom. Six would get Cyprus and Egypt, eight would get Cyrenaica, and what is today eastern Libya. But they weren't done posturing for power. Number 8 would take the trip to Rome and convince the Senate that he should be in charge of Cyprus. Of course, 6 was opposed to this. The Senate would agree with 8, 
and in 161 BC, eight would invade the island of Cyprus, but he would fail. The Roman Senate was quite understandably disappointed, and in reaction, they sent number six's ambassador to Rome, home to Egypt. Overall, it was a family feud that had international consequences, and the feud would continue to the point that in probably 156 BC, number six attempted to have his brother, number eight, assassinated, possibly in some sort of stabbing event. At two, Brutus? Eight would travel back to Rome to air his gripes, even displaying his physical scars personally to the senators. He petitioned the Senate for support against his competitive brother. Now, several senators opposed him, including Cato the Elder, but Eight was successful, in the end obtaining the Senate's support of another invasion of Cyprus, support that included financial resources. Apparently, the resources provided by Rome weren't enough, though, as this invasion attempt failed, too, again miserably failed, to the point that number eight was captured by number six's forces. And while you would expect that six would have eight executed, he knew that this would not unite the kingdom, as many western sections remained loyal to eight. So, knowing what his overall goal was, he went a different route and did what kings did to princesses. He offered his own daughter, Cleopatra Thea, to his brother to become his wife. Yes, number eight would take his own niece, the daughter of both his brother and sister, as his wife. And the kingdom would be more united, somewhat. Number six would send his brother, along with his new wife, back to Cyrenaica. Not long afterwards, six would die while on a military campaign in 145 BC. His wife, Cleopatra II, would very quickly have her son, Ptolemy VII, enthroned as king. But number eight soon returned from the battle where his brother died. Eight would quickly propose to his sister, who was also the mother to his wife. Cleopatra II would accept, perhaps knowing, or hoping, it would help to keep her son in control, or at least lined up for control in the future. That plan wouldn't work out as her new husband knew what she was potentially up to. During their wedding feast, think of it as a reception, number eight would have his new stepson, who was also his full nephew, assassinated. These people were demented. With number six and seven's deaths, number eight would have an unfettered claim to the throne, and with it, Cyprus, without any sort of an invasion. Soon afterwards, number eight attempted to remove all remnants of his brother's rule. That included the purge of the intellectuals I briefly covered when discussing the history of the library at Alexandria. Later, number eight would marry Cleopatra III, who was Cleo number two's daughter, which means she was also his niece. So, if you're keeping track, that means his three wives were all named Cleopatra. Two were both his nieces and stepdaughters, and the other was his full sister. You seriously can't make this stuff up. Things on the domestic front were falling apart, 
In either 132 or maybe 131 BC, a riot broke out in Alexandria. And the people were so fed up that they set the royal palace ablaze. Number 8 would escape with his most recent wife, Cleopatra of the third iteration, along with their children, to Cyprus. Of course. Cleopatra II remained, along with her 12-year-old son, Ptolemy Memphites. Memphites was the son of number 8. His mother would see that he was proclaimed the king of Egypt. But, number 8 still desired to rule Egypt. He successfully plotted to have Memphites captured, murdered, and dismembered, sending what was left of him back to his mother. Remember, he did this to his own son and sent the package to his wife and sister. This is seriously messed up. This, along with the general economic decline, led to a civil war. On one side was Cleopatra No. 2 and the memory of Ptolemy No. 6, an alignment centered around the city of Alexandria. On the other side was No. 8, who was aligned with the rest of the country. Cleopatra knew she was in a precarious position. Her territory was smaller. She did not have the support of Rome, and the vast majority of the country supported her competitor. She was desperate, and desperate people do desperate things. Cleopatra would get in touch with the Seleucid king Demetrius II, Nicator, offering him kingship of Egypt if he would only send his military there to help her capture the rest of the country. He would take her up on the offer, send his military, but they would only take territory as far south as Pelusium, which is in the delta, so not really that far south. By 127 BC, Cleopatra could see the whole effort was futile, and she fled to Syria. Alexandria did not fall immediately, and would hold off Number 8's forces for another year. Now, Cleopatra would stay in Syria for only three years, the whole time continuing to maneuver politically in Egypt, returning in 124 BC. As part of these diplomatic measures, that same year, Number 8 would send his daughter, another Cleopatra, to marry Antiochus VIII, the then king of the Seleucid kingdom. Number six was politically savvy enough to know he still needed the elder Cleopatra's support to gain control of the entire country. He would allow for amnesty of his former enemies in 118 BC, but given all that had happened, it was not enough. Number eight would die in 116 BC, leaving the throne to Cleopatra III, along with one of her sons, and he would let her pick which son. Now that's a bit new. She picked her younger son, Alexander, intending to personally serve as his regent. But the people wanted someone else, her older son, Philometor Sotor, who is currently the governor of Cyprus. Cleopatra would grudgingly go along with the will of the people. Philometus Sotor would take the throne, becoming the ninth iteration of Ptolemy, and Cleopatra would rule at his side. At the same time, sensing an opportunity, the Romans would intervene. But before getting to them, let's cover Ptolemy IX Sotor. His nickname translates to the Savior. Sometimes, though, he's saddled with the nickname Lathros, 
which translates to chickpea. Hummus, anyone? Number 9 would take the throne in 116 BC, when he was about 26 years old. Despite being old enough, by far, needing no regent, he would rule jointly with his mother, Cleopatra III. When he took the throne, he had already married his sister, Cleopatra IV. But Cleo number 3 was a bit of a control freak and wanted to maintain as much power as possible. Despite her son being king, she was worried about her son's wife, who was also her own daughter, to the point that she pushed Cleopatra IV out and had the king marry another daughter-slash-sister, this one known as Cleopatra Selene I. But even that did not give Cleopatra III as much power and control as she desired. So, in 107 BC, she reclaimed that the king, Ptolemy IX, had tried to kill her. Around the same time, Cleopatra III would send her grandchildren to the island of Kos, along with her wealth. This was done in order to protect them while she prepared for war with Ptolemy IX. Her intent was to have him deposed and to have another of her sons, her favorite, the one she previously wanted to rule, Alexander, installed as king. And it worked. Number 9 would escape to Cyprus and live there in exile. It seems that these deposed Greek-Egyptian leaders really had a thing for Cyprus. While there, he may have served as the governor of the island, which seems a little odd, as it might indicate he wasn't completely out of favor in Egypt. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, Alexander would assume the name Ptolemy X, and this Ptolemy, despite apparently being his mother's favorite son, did not hold her in the same regard. That, or he knew she couldn't be trusted. Either way, dear old mom, Cleopatra III, was murdered in 101 BC, and the conventional wisdom, both then and now, is that Ptolemy X was behind her death, either directly or indirectly. Ten was then exiled to Syria. At that point, number nine would retake the throne. Ten would soon return with the backing of a mercenary army, retake part of the country, and even melt down Alexander the Great's gold sarcophagus. The people were so outraged, he was run off again, this time heading to Cyprus, of course, where he would die. Nine would remain in power and rule for the next seven years, until his death in 81 BC, at the age of about 61. Curiously, during his second reign, he may have ruled jointly with his daughter, Berenice III, who was also the widow of Ptolemy X. And number nine, ruling with the widow of his predecessor, would have certainly given a bit more legitimacy to his claim to the throne. Which gets me to this third version of Berenice, sometimes called Cleopatra Berenice, of course, since it's the combination of the two most common female ruler names of the Greek-Egyptian era. With the death of Ptolemy IX, she would be left as the sole ruler of Egypt. She seized the opportunity and leveraged the will of the people, to the point where it said they came to adore her, but you have to know that others had their eye on the throne, 
and given the times, there was really nothing they wouldn't do to gain absolute power. A mere six months into her reign, in 80 BC, she was forced to marry someone. And you may be wondering how she could be forced to marry. She was queen, after all. Across the pond known as the Mediterranean, in Rome, Sola, a Roman general and statesman, wanted a pro-Roman ruler on the throne. So, he had the young son of Ptolemy X sent to Egypt. He rationalized and justified this by presenting Ptolemy Alexander's last will and testament. The groom was Berenice's cousin, who was also her stepson, Ptolemy XI Alexander II. A mouthful. Then, only 19 days after the wedding ceremony, when she was only 39 years old, Eleven would have Berenice III killed. And remember when I said that even in a dictatorship, the rulers have to have the consent of the people? This is yet another example. So was their love for their now-dead queen, that the citizenry revolted and killed the king, Ptolemy XI, hanging him. And with both their deaths, so ended the reigns of what are considered the legitimate Ptolemies and their female relatives, usually named Berenice, Cleopatra, or both. Of course, the throne didn't sit empty. It's thought that the choices by this point were rather bleak. There were no fully legitimate heirs. And the country's neighbors were in search of any sort of justification for invasion. Next in line was Ptolemy XII's Aulitz, who was considered an illegitimate son of Ptolemy IX, which also made him the half-brother of Berenice. His legitimacy is questioned because we currently aren't sure who was his mother. And to think, the Egyptians kept better records some 1,000 years earlier. The speculation is that either Cleopatra IV or some yet-to-be-determined ethnically Greek Alexandrian woman bore him. And you may be wondering why he wouldn't be recognized as a rightful heir if Cleo IV was his mother. Well, his dad's marriage to Cleopatra IV was likely unapproved by his mother, Cleopatra number 3, and therefore it wouldn't have been either legal or proper. The man who would become king, Ptolemy XII, along with his younger brother, or maybe half-brother, also named Ptolemy, of course, were recalled from the kingdom of Pontus, located on the Black Sea. They had been living there, embedded in the court of the king of Pontus, Mithridates IV. Apparently, the both of them had been engaged to two different daughters of Mithridates. It seems that the Alexandrians recognized them as the successors to the Ptolemaic kingdom, hoping to further stave off Roman rule, or at least a potential annexation. What was potentially unknown to them, at least at this time, is that the Roman Senate wasn't yet interested in acquiring formal control of Egypt. Yet. Potentially to prevent an invasion, or possibly annexation, Number 12 was installed in Alexandria. At the same time, he was given a queen as a wife, in this case Cleopatra V, who is probably his full or half-sister, making her a daughter of Ptolemy number 9. His younger brother, a yet-to-be-numbered Ptolemy, was appointed as the governor of Cyprus 
At the time, the island was the only territory held by Egypt outside of its traditional borders. All of this places us in 80 BC. Ptolemy XII Aulitz is on the throne, attempting to stabilize the country after a very turbulent period following a rapid succession of kings and queens, brothers and sisters, fallen half, cousins, and the like, all seemingly named Ptolemy, Cleopatra, and Berenice. And as for the name Aulitz, it's a bit different too. At least he wasn't known as the Fat, or Chickpea. But his historic reputation isn't really much better, as he is generally regarded as being weak, self-indulgent, and a drunk. Not three good qualities, especially in a leader during turbulent times. According to Strabo, quoting, Now all the kings after the third Ptolemy, being corrupted by luxurious living, having administered the affairs of government badly, but worst of all the fourth, seventh, and the last, Aulitz, who, apart from his general licentiousness, practiced the accompaniment of choruses with the flute, and upon this he prided himself so much that he would not hesitate to celebrate contests in the royal palace, and at these contests would come forward to vie with the opposing contestants, end quote, the flautist, a reputation that has lasted millennia. Number 12 would rule from 80 to 58 BC. Backing up a bit, and as we've seen in the past couple of episodes, the physical distance from Rome to Egypt resulted in a mostly mutual indifference. There were times when the Egyptians would request that the Romans settle royal conflicts. This would continue during number 12's reign. In fact, he would escalate it. It's understandable why he was a bit paranoid about maintaining control over the throne, but also making sure he didn't end up murdered. His strategy was a bit different, though. He would enact a pro-Roman policy. Back in Rome, in 63 BC, it looked like Pompey would emerge as the leader after a power struggle. Ptolemy XII wanted to take advantage of this situation and sent Pompey a tribute of treasure along with an invitation to visit Alexandria. Pompey kept the material, but declined the invitation. Ptolemy XII was frustrated, but not undeterred. He would make the trip to Rome, where he paid a bribe to both Pompey and Julius Caesar for an official recognition of his Egyptian kingship, a bribe that was 6,000 talents, presumably of either silver or gold, maybe both, and remember, just last episode, I mentioned that 1,000 talents was roughly 10% of the Egyptian economy. So 6,000 would of course be 60%. But there are far too many caveats to list in making this math work. Just know it was a huge sum. And the bribe worked, as a formal alliance was formed between Rome and Egypt, and Ptolemy's name was inscribed into the list of friends and allies of the Roman people. In 58 BC, the Romans seized Cyprus, which led Twelve's brother to commit suicide. Despite this, and because he owed allegiance to Rome, Twelve remained silent on the Roman expansion. This, in turn, incensed the Roman population, to the point that a rebellion began. 
the Egyptian populace was already perturbed due to the fateful combination of heavy taxes and hyperinflation. Both were mostly the result of the large Roman bribe slash tribute. This turmoil did not end in Ptolemy's death. Instead, he was exiled to Rome, possibly accompanied by his daughter, Cleopatra VII. The revolt was led by his oldest daughter, Berenice IV, who would then claim the throne. While in Rome, Number 12 worked the Roman politicians to gain their support to recapture the Egyptian throne. Pompey, who previously benefited from the huge payoff and potentially hoping for another, allowed 12, along with 12's daughter, to live in his home and also argued on his behalf within the Senate. But that wasn't all the exiled king had going for him. Merchants and lenders realize they may be sitting on a mountain of debt that without the restoration of twelve would never be repaid. They, too, would put pressure on the politicians to restore the king. So, the Senate acted, but not directly. In the meantime, in Egypt, rumors were swirling about twelve's impending return, and as expected, not everyone was excited about the prospect to the point that a diplomatic contingent of 100 men set off to Rome to plead with the Senate against him. Now, do you really think Ptolemy XII would sit idly by? Of course not. He had the leader of the contingent, the philosopher Dion, poisoned. But he wasn't done. He also had most of the other diplomats killed before they even got to Rome. So, with a mutual understanding, the Romans provided him with both money and military aid, but he would need even more help. In 55 BC, he hired a mercenary force led by Alusa Gabinius, a prominent supporter of Pompey, who is motivated by the payment of 10,000 talents. Now some of that went to his men, and at the time, since 12 was not the king, it's likely this money was at least partially financed by the Romans. Gabinius defeated the outposted Egyptian forces, marched to Alexandria, then attacked the palace, where the palace guards surrendered without a fight. And with that, Twelve was able to recapture control of Egypt, in the process having his rival, who was also his daughter, Berenice IV, executed, along with her high-ranking supporters. To ensure his continued control of the country, Rome stationed about 2,000 soldiers in Alexandria. Of course, this had the added benefit of ensuring Roman authority. Now that he was back, Egypt's creditors in Rome wanted their money, but Twelve had learned from his prior rule, and he would not personally impose any taxes. What's a dictator to do? Shift responsibility and blame. He appointed the largest creditor, a lad by the name of Gaius, Robarius Postumus as the Minister of Finance. So he was in charge of the debt repayment. As expected, the Egyptian populace was not happy with the measures imposed by the minister to collect money. Twelve had the minister imprisoned, claiming it was for his own protection from the mob. Twelve then allowed Robarius to escape to Rome, but Rome still wanted his money. So, Twelve employed a tactic that is still used in the present day. 
he minted more coinage and consequently devalued it to the point that by the end of his reign, it had lost half of its value, a classic case of monetary policy leading to inflation. After recapturing the throne, he would rule Egypt for another four years until his death in 51 BC. In his will, he would leave control of the country to be shared jointly by his daughter Cleopatra VII and his son Ptolemy XIII. To ensure this is truly how the transition occurred, he made the people of Rome executors of his will. This was met with Pompey's approval, which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I hope to wrap up the history of BC Egypt. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.